Good morning. Welcome to Crosspoint this morning. We're going to start off a little differently this morning. I want to give a special welcome to those of you who are here that were visiting Vacation Bible School this week. And we're going to start off with some VBS music. So the VBS team can come on up. Any kids that are here this morning, come on up to the floor right in front of the stage so we can see you. You can see us and dance. And I want to invite everybody else up to stand up and sing and do the motions along with us because it's more fun that way. So let's get started. So I just want to take a second and thank everybody who was involved in VBS in any way. I mean, it, we did have a ton of fun, but all that you saw up there, it takes a lot of work. And it's not just the day and the week of, it's a long time beforehand. So from everyone who did the decorations were amazing, right? Do you guys like those? Yeah. And the food, the snacks every night, um, feeding our staff, Miss Gina, Miss Kelly, and everybody who was involved in that, who fed the staff, um, everyone who was involved in the games, um, the crafts, uh, one craft in particular was really popular, slime. Everybody love that. I'm sure you guys love that coming home, too. You're welcome. Um, to, you know, just every little part of it. And everyone who stayed after the, the big family night to party to clean up, I mean, that's a thankless job. And, and we're so grateful. Miss um, Jerry, who does a great job cleaning our church anyway. Um, just everybody. But I just personally want to thank Miss Becky. Everybody give her a hand. Miss Becky Williamson, this is an, an all-around year gig for her. In addition to her other responsibilities, that she's always thinking and she's so flexible with all of us when we're running up to her <laughs> all night long, asking her questions. What do we do about this? Oh my goodness, this isn't gonna work. And she's just great about it. And I, I want to thank my personal DJ. I don't think he's here today, but Mr. Van, give Mr. DJ Vanny Van a hand. <laughs> Um, I can't do what I do as part of EBS without him because we work on the fly. That's what we do. <laughs> so, and I want to thank another partner a little bit later that you guys got to know. She was pretty awesome, but yeah. So I got to MC this year for VBS, and I love doing that because I love seeing all you kids and getting to work with you. So I wondered if you might remember what we learned about our Bible point on day one. Do you remember? I see you looking up there. Is it up there? No. Oh, that's some interesting statistics. You guys don't care about that. <laughs> so we learned on day one that God gives us the power to be thankful. That's right. And then what do we do? Aha! Because it's an important discovery in case you didn't know. So we say, aha. He does. And on day two, we learn. God gives us the power to be helpful. Uh, oh, Miss Sherry, Miss Sherry. Hi, hi, hey. hi, hi, hi. Um, I remember the, the, the power to, uh, to be helpful. Can, can I tell that part of the story? Yes, everybody, this is Professor Wilma. Hi. Yes. Okay, so, so night two was one of my favorite nights at VBS. We got to do a really fun experiment. And we learned about how Jesus gives us the power to be helpful. You got it. And we learned about that point because Jesus helped heal a blind man. And so we did a really fun experiment to kind of help Miss Sherry and the rest of us understand what it would be like to be blind. Do you guys remember this one? Had something to do with some toilet paper. Yeah, you do. Do you 
remember this? Yeah, now you know what you're talking yeah. about. Okay, so I'm gonna go backstage and get my supplies. I'll be right back. Is is it okay if I take a little bit of time to to do this experiment? I know Dave's not here, so that's all right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Why do I'll we be right care? Pastor Dave's gone. I don't know. So, yeah, we did a couple of fun experiments at Power Lab VBS this year, and some of them were messier than others. The toilet, yeah, that was a little bit messy, but they were fun, right? Were they fun? But a lot of these grown-ups didn't get to experience it, so okay. do you think they should? So, this is my toilet paper, and this is going to teach all the kids what it's like to be blind. we learned how Jesus gives us the power to be helpful. So you guys can learn that by helping us clean up the toilet paper at the end of service. Yes. At the end of at the okay. end of this we're going to clean up the toilet paper because we love I said Miss Jerry and she's we not going to want toilet paper all over. Okay, Thanks so Sherry, say bye Professor Wilma. We love her. All right, day three, day three, we learned God help gives us the power to be brave, right? Aha. Uh -huh. And day four, we learned, actually, on day four, we learned that Jesus gives us the power to live forever. Aha. Uh -huh. And then day five, that was our last day of Power Lab VBS. That was a pretty fun day. Day five, we learn that Jesus helps us tell others about God. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I want to know from you guys, what was your favorite part about VBS? Raise your hand, and I'll tell you. Bible story. Bible stories. Anybody else? What was your favorite part? Snacks and crafts. Snacks and crafts. I like a guy who's honest. Games. Games. Those were pretty fun. It was hot. It was hot this week, but we did a pretty good job keeping cool. Games. 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 Um, to play a game. Games. Um, crafts and Bible stories. Crafts and Bible stories. Um, crafts and Bible stories. Crafts and Bible stories. That was fun. I would say games and crafts. Games and crafts. Very popular. Bible story. Crafts. Crafts. Well, we had some awesome crafts. Do you have one? What was it? Science experiments. Singing and Bible stories. Singing and Bible stories. We had so much fun doing stuff, guys. Yeah, Mrs. Buttersugar. I don't know if she's here today. Mrs. Buttersugar, she told a pretty good Bible story back there. That was pretty fun, right? And everyone did such a great job on the crafts and the games that were super fun and hot. I have to say my favorite part of Power Lab BBS was day four. Because on day four, 
we talk about the gospel, right? And I know of one person, at least, who accepted Jesus that night. And that's amazing to us. You know, that's the whole reason that we do this. It's the whole reason. Give it up, buddy. So proud of you. That's the whole reason we do this. It's super fun. And that's the reason we do it. And that's the reason why um, we prepare all year long for it. Because that's the point, right? To accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that gives you the power to tell him, tell others about him. So what about that one day, let's see, it was day five, that something happened to me and Professor Wilma? I'm I'm surprised nobody said that was their favorite, watching us get slimed. Yeah. Well, they might not know why I got slimed. So we do a mission project every year at Power Lab or at VBS. And this year it was Operation Christmas Child. So we had everybody bring new toys for boys and girls of all ages to be collected and be packed up in shoeboxes this fall. So we had kind of a slow start because Miss Sherry kind of forgot to tell you about it one night, right? My bad. So we were had a slow start. So our goal was what? was our goal? 200 toys, right? And I, and I said if we got to 200 that Professor Wilma and I could get slimed, right? And so what did you guys do? Did you get 199? How many did you get? 409. Yeah. So, they are either very giving or they don't like me very much. But that was awesome, you guys. That was awesome because now a bunch of kids are going to get to have a Christmas gift that maybe didn't get to have one. And you guys did that, okay? So, awesome job. So, what did we do every night at VBS at the end? Finale, yeah. And what was the very last thing that Miss Sherry would do with you? I heard it back there. What was it? Pray, right? We would pray. And in traditional form, Miss Sherry has no shoes on, right? Because I don't like to wear shoes up here. So we're going to do that now before you go back to your parents. So can we bow our heads, close our eyes, and talk to God? Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this week that we had at VBS. God, we know that it's just a small part of everything you're doing in this church and in these kids' lives. We're glad that we could have friends come from other churches or people who don't have a church, Lord, and they got to experience you this week. Thank you for giving us all the energy, God, to keep going all week and realize that the main point is you and that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and he gives us the power to do miraculous things. We're so grateful for every kiddo, every grown-up who was there and involved, Lord, and we know that that's because you gave them the heart to do it. We love you so much, and everyone said in Jesus' name, Amen. While they're coming back to you, obviously you got to see and hear that we did have a great week together. And you saw some statistics up there. Those are always interesting things to share. Um, And it's easy to get focused on the numbers, but the real encouragement comes when we can share evidence of God's grace with each other. And in today's world, I'm I'm sure I'm not alone when... um, It's just more and more important for us to encourage each other in the one source of truth 
and encouraging each other that God is working and so that we can be alert to see that. So in those numbers, and I'm sorry about the graphics, I was supposed to check it and make sure Micah nicely saved it in a different file format just in case the wording was messed up. So the little S that's hanging down there underneath the visitor, sorry, I forgot to check. It's really bothersome to me. But anyway, the evidence of God's grace is in those 59 visitors that came to Cross Point. Um, some of those kids probably have church homes and are thriving in church homes, but some may not. And when a visitor comes here and comes into a different environment and hears the gospel shared by a different voice, sometimes that's what God uses to open their heart to the gospel in a new way, just a new setting. So that's a beautiful evidence of God. Some others I want to share with you, um, just that I saw. Um, a single parent who was able to be welcomed here and felt comfortable here instead of um, a hurtful experience that had happened in church uh, for her in the past. Um, a little boy who was prompted to pray after VBS one night asked his mom if they could pray together. A child that was so excited to tell me about the neighbor that she had invited to VBS and that that neighbor couldn't be there tonight because the mom and dad couldn't bring him, but she was hoping they had come tomorrow, and the story went on and on. But she was thrilled to tell me about this invitation that she had made. Evidence of God's grace was just the protection that we had for the week, that there were no injuries. It was a safe week for us, even with so many people in and around the building. And obviously just that God provided for us in every way. So as Ms. Sherry already very well said um, to everybody, thank you for your part. It's, it takes all of us um, from every little piece to every onstage piece. Um, it's beautiful to see everybody come together. It's exhausting, but it is beautiful, and it's encouraging in that way. So thank you for being part of it. Well, good morning. All right. Well, um, so when I was told that I had the opportunity to preach uh, the morning of the VBS celebration, I got really excited about a couple of things. First, um, this is the one Sunday a year that I know every single one of you is going to be awake because you spent the first part of the service getting jiggy with it to the VBS song. So um, I hope and I pray that that getting up and moving around will help you uh, listen. There's nothing that prepares the heart more than hearing God's word proclaimed by the faith of children and um, there's something very beautiful about that, and Jesus brings that to our attention in the Gospels. Uh, the second thing that I know is just fantastic about preaching on VBS Celebration Sunday is that it is the one Sunday a year that I know for sure that I can wear a t-shirt up here. So, game on, I got a t-shirt on. Well, um, if the First Impressions volunteers would be uh, willing to pass out the connection cards if you guys see that. Uh, if you're new with us, please fill out the gray box. Um, and if you're not new with us, or even if you're new with us, I just want to draw your attention to the prayer request section uh, down in the bottom of those. I personally love looking at those, love praying for you guys. Um, I know our elder team loves praying for you guys, and we love the opportunity to come alongside of you uh, in that way. And so know that if you have a prayer request, it is prayed for, um, and it is prayed for regularly by our staff and our elders. So if you have a Bible, um, get to Matthew 14. We're going to be in verse 13 uh, through 21 today, looking at uh, the feeding of the 5,000. This is an incredible miracle of Jesus. But right before we get into the text, I just have a, a little bit of Crosspoint family news to share. So um, on July 16th, Austin Miller and Darcy Wagenbach got uh, engaged. So we are celebrating with them and excited for that. Please, yeah, get, yeah. We love marriage around here. We do. 
Um, and then uh, just another bit of Crosspoint family news this morning. Uh, Jacob and Trisha Gillette welcomed in their first child. Uh, his name is Declan James. He was born on July 19th. He was seven pounds, five ounces, and 19 and three quarter inches long. So we are thankful for the blessing that Declan James brings to the Gillette family. And um, you should see uh, on our Facebook page, it was posted this last week, just an opportunity to provide meals for them. Um, I know when uh, our son Leon was born, it was crazy. Uh, you know, first-time parents, it's just, it's hectic. So if you love to cook and you love to be hospitable in that way, I just want to encourage you to go to our Facebook page and take them a meal. Um, those meals will start tomorrow night. So uh, please take a look at that. Cook them something delicious. And um, here's, a, here's a challenge for you. You should eat it with them. So a lot of times when, when, when we, we just kind of drop off a meal and leave, but maybe try to put some margin in your schedule where you can sit and eat the meal with them, pray for their family, and encourage them in the faith as new parents. So um, once again, Matthew 14, feeding of the 5,000. So um, the feeding of the 5,000 is a very, very interesting miracle. One of the things that makes the feeding of the 5,000 interesting is the Gospels, we have four gospels account, uh, co- Gospel accounts in the Bible. Matthew wrote one. Mark wrote one, Luke wrote one, and John wrote one. And of all the miracles that Jesus performed in his life on earth, there are only two miracles that actually appear in all four of the gospel accounts. Those two miracles are the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and the feeding of the 5,000. The reason why I wanted to say that to you is because if this is the only miracle aside from the resurrection that is included in all four gospel accounts, then the authors who wrote the gospels must see it as very significant. And so this is a very significant text that we're in this morning. I'm excited to preach it. Um, The clock is like my worst enemy, and and I've I've already been, the the game and the table has been set, so I'm going to try to um, get into this text quickly, and we're going to see what God's word has to say to us this morning. So uh, Matthew 14, starting verse 13, we're going to read this thing. So when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to them. Bring them here to me, he said. And he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the crowds, or gave them to the disciples, I'm sorry. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, your Holy Spirit and how your spirit opens our eyes to see wonderful things in your scriptures. And so I pray today, God, as we wrestle with this passage together, as we proclaim the word of Christ this morning, that it would land on fertile ground, that um, anyone listening would be challenged and encouraged in the faith. God, that we would be reminded of your graces for us, and most of all, that we would see Christ as the supreme shepherd this morning, and that he demands our affections. Amen. So the feeding of the 5,000. Now the Bible describes in verse 21, it says that um, the 5,000, that number was actually only counting the men that were present. 
And so we can, it's very, very safe to assume that rather than 5,000 people being here, if you include women and children, there were probably around 10,000 people present getting fed off of five loaves of fish and two, or five loaves of bread and two fish. Now here's the interesting thing. The loaves of bre- bread were not like giant loaves. They were more like cakes, and they were barley loaves. And barley loaves and pickled fish, which would have been the food that was given to Jesus to multiply, would have been the food of somebody who's in poverty. So I want you to think not immaculate like Panera bread. I want you to think like ramen noodles, right? This is, this is the meal of somebody who is in poverty. And while it might be very difficult for us to understand and get our head around the fact that Jesus took this meal for one person and completely filled roughly 10,000 people, it's, it's hard for us to understand. We would look at that and we would say, it's impossible. And it is impossible. And that's the point of the miracle. Because this miracle emphasizes the deity of Christ and the call that God places on our lives, the demand that God places on our lives to worship Christ supremely. The interesting thing about this miracle is many people have tried to interpret this miracle through natural means. They've taken the supernatural aspect of what was going on here and they try to explain it away using physical means. And the reality is, is that the, the physical miracles that Jesus did cannot be merely described by physical things. In the 18th century, uh, many of you guys probably have heard this, especially uh, studying it in school, there was a movement that swept across the Western world called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment produced many amazing goods uh, for, for human thought and culture. The scientific method came out of the Enlightenment. The scientific method is something that has um, boomed our, our progression as humanity and our ability to see and observe things that we've never been able to see, observe, or explain. It's a phenomenal thing. But what it's done, what the Enlightenment has done is not only positive. It's not just a positive thing. It has affected the way that we approach the Scriptures. In the 18th century, during the Enlightenment, there was a popular philosophical way of thinking that birthed out of this movement, and it's called naturalism. And naturalism is this way of thinking that perceives the existence of all things and says that anything that physically exists in this world must be explained by nature. If it cannot be explained by nature, it doesn't exist. And so basically, at at its core, what this means is that if we cannot explain the existence of something using physical means then that something must not be real. That something must not exist. And the way that this has warped the way that we see Scripture is it's taken our interpretation of the Bible and we've tried to use physical means to justify the supernatural things in the Bible like the miracles of Jesus. And so one of the ways that this Bible has been interpreted through this lens is people have thought that, so before Jesus showed up on the shore and these 10,000 people were here, the disciples went and hid a bunch of bread and fish in a cave. I'm serious. This is, this is real ways that this passage has been interpreted. They went and hid fish and bread in a cave. Once Jesus got to the shore and he saw the 10,000 people, he began to pray for the, for the meal, right? We saw that in the text. It says that he blessed the meal, and this is what happened. While Jesus was praying, the disciples ran into the cave. Somehow, 12 men were able to grab food for 10,000 people. They ran behind Jesus, and they began to feed the bread and the fish through the back of Jesus' robe and through his sleeves to give an appearance that the food was being multiplied. That's ridiculous. Like, it's, it's funny. It is. It's, it's, it is ridiculous. Another way that this passage has been portrayed 
Again, this, this, this story has been told, this miracle has been told in all four gospel accounts. In the book of John, John tells us that the five loaves and the two fish that were provided to Jesus actually did not come from the disciples. They came from a small boy. And many people have interpreted this passage to say that this small boy who was generous enough to give what he had inspired generosity throughout the crowds of people. And so they say the miracle was not a miracle of Jesus' supernatural provision for the people, but that it was an inward miracle of stirring up the generous hearts of the people present. Basically what they said is that this boy's generosity challenged the people in the crowd who had food on them to share it with others and so on and so forth until 10,000 people were fed. The Bible is clear. This is not what happened here. And why it might be difficult for you to wrap your heads around the fact that the Son of God was able to multiply five loaves and two fish and feed 10,000 people until they were fully satisfied. 10,000. There's not even 300 people in this room Multiply that by 10, and we're getting a fraction of the people that were present. Five loaves, two fish, 10,000 people. This is an incredible miracle, and it, it has illusions throughout the whole thing of Christ fulfilling Old Testament scripture as Christ, as the supreme Moses, as Christ, as the supreme shepherd of God's people, and that's what I want to get at today. I want you to see, I want you to believe that Christ is the supreme shepherd of the people of God and that he demands our affections this morning. It's very easy to try to look at the Bible and justify the supernatural things that happen. It's very easy for us to try to do um, interpretation gymnastics to try to get around the supernatural things that we can't explain. But the reality is the Bible is clear. This is what happened. And when we do this, when we try to interpret the Bible... In a, in a way that, that, that skews the text, in a way that justifies the supernatural work of God and reduces it to physical means, what we're doing is we're belittling God. We are belittling God. We are suppressing the glory of Christ. We are mocking the integrity of the word. And we are disrespecting a holy, perfect God that created us to be in communion with him. And the reality is, we honestly, we don't consistently magnify the glory of Christ in our lives. The reality is you and me every day, while we might not have a, a, a perspective of Scripture, or we might not say that we have a perspective of Scripture that, that belittles God, you and I belittle God and suppress His glory every single day that we choose to be distracted by the worries of this world rather than behold the glory of Christ in worship daily. And so while we might look at the way that some people have interpreted this passage and think it's ridiculous, we do the same thing with our way of lives. The same thing with our way of lives when we do not behold the glory of Christ from the moment we wake up. And we all do this. Nobody in this room is exempt from this. But what I'm hoping, what I'm hoping as we look at this text is that we would see God stir up in our church a desire to magnify the name of Jesus in everything and exalt the name of Jesus in everything and see Christ as a supreme shepherd who offers us supreme compassion. To see Christ as a supreme shepherd who offers us the ability to participate in the divine nature, the divine power of God, and that we have a supreme shepherd who satisfies us completely. Christ is king. 
Christ is king. He is the one that is to be exalted in our lives. He is the one that makes it possible for us to even love him, and he demands our affections. Jesus Christ has laid down his life so that you and I can know God and enjoy him. And in Christ, we are offered the supreme compassion that allows us to know God and to enjoy him. In verse 13 of this passage, it says, When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, when the crowds heard that Jesus withdrew, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went, reached the shore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed the sick. Now, this, this is a very, very inconvenient moment in Jesus' ministry, or it seems like a very inconvenient moment in Jesus' ministry. I know uh, from personal experience that there have been times where I've tried to withdraw right, like vacation or a weekend or something like that. I'm trying to withdraw from something that's going on in my life. And in Jesus' life, it actually says when he heard about it in verse 13. And that is referring to the passage before of Jesus hearing from John the Baptist's disciples that Herod, King Herod, had killed John the Baptist and that King Herod believed that Jesus, because of the miraculous things that he was doing, was actually John the Baptist returned from the dead. And so Jesus heard about this and it compelled him to withdraw. And he withdrew with his disciples. And um, so you can imagine, like, okay, we're going to retreat together. And I, I could imagine, you know, all of the things that are going on in Jesus' life. At the time, the opportunity to sail across a lake on a boat would have probably seemed to be very relaxing. But as they approach the shore, they see a crowd of people, 10,000 people on this shore. And Jesus steps onto the shore and rather than being inconvenienced like you or me when we receive a phone call or an email when we're trying to retreat and getting irritated, the God-man had immense compassion for the people. And Mark, in Mark's account of, of this story, he actually gives us insight into why Jesus was compassionate for the people. In Mark chapter 6, verses 32 through 34, it says this. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. And so they ran on foot from all towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. You see, compassion sees the need of people. And compassion doesn't just see the need of people. Compassion meets the need of people. And what Jesus does when he shows compassion to these people is he sees their need and he meets their need. But far greater than the compassion that we so commonly offer the world, Jesus saw through the physical need to the spiritual need. Jesus didn't just see a bunch of people who needed something. Yes, Jesus came on shore and it actually says that he, he came on shore and he spent all day, all day, teaching these people about the kingdom of God. That's what we're told in Luke. Healing the people, which is what Matthew seems to focus on in his narrative. And so Jesus spends all day, right, meeting this spiritual need of, of, of healing people, of their afflictions, and teaching people about the kingdom of God. But he does something interesting in that is that he's motivated by his compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that illusion, that metaphor, is not something that's going to like hit home for us, right? We don't hear sheep without a shepherd, and we're like, yes, that is compassion. We don't, we don't do that. And the reason why is because, well, that trade is not common in our culture. But a shepherd is the most consistent term used in the Bible to show illusions of godly leadership. And so when Jesus has compassion on them, like sheep without a shepherd, 
The Bible is painting allusions all over the place to the Old Testament. I want to read one to you. It's in Ezekiel 34. You see the shepherds of Israel were the kings of Israel. And so often in the Old Testament, as we've seen throughout the Gospel Project, the shepherds of Israel, the shepherds of God's people in the Old Testament did not shepherd well. And so in Ezekiel 34, God prophesies through the prophet Ezekiel against the shepherds of Israel. And he says this, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, woe to the kings of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them violently and cruelly. Jesus fed the people with the truth of God and offered them healing. And this is Jesus' action in compassion for the people. And it stands as a radical contrast to the, the lack of compassion of the shepherds of Israel that God is prophesying against in Ezekiel 34. Jesus himself is asserting himself as the supreme shepherd over God's people. Why? Because God has placed him there. You see, God himself, the creator of the universe, has exalted Jesus as the supreme shepherd of the people of God. God himself has put Jesus in the position of authority to fulfill what past shepherds of Israel could not, and that is shepherd the people of God in righteousness, lead the people of God in righteousness, and that is what Jesus is doing here. He is the one who has been established by God to lead the people. They need someone to lead them. They need someone to care for them. They need someone to heal them. They need someone to teach them. They need someone to be their shepherd. Just like we need somebody to be our shepherd. Jesus is the supreme shepherd of God's people and he has given authority to under shepherds of his church to shepherd the people of God. If you are a member of this church, when you sign the membership covenant, you are claiming that you are giving authority to the elders of this church to shepherd you, to lead you, to disciple you, to correct you if you need to be corrected, to teach you about the kingdom of God, to help you understand what it looks like to grow in Christ's likeness. And the reason why is because God uses his people to carry out his purposes. And so the under-shepherds, the pastors, elders, teachers of the church, are in submission to the supreme shepherd, Jesus. And we are all in submission to the supreme shepherd of Jesus. But that is why God has ordained elders to lead the church, a plurality of elders to lead the churches so that they could be tasked with, the, with your souls to shepherd the people of God in righteousness. We need to be shepherded. Christ has seen the need. Christ meets the need. And this reflects God's compassion as well because Christ is not just any man. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. All of the fullness of God is clothed in the person of Christ. And so Jesus carries with him not just the authority of God, but he is God himself. And so Jesus' compassion reflects to us the compassion of our God to his people. I want you to listen to a lot of people, you know, they, they, they try to contrast the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old. And I want, I want you to see one of the sweetest promises in the Old Testament that's looking forward to the supreme shepherd Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Look in Ezekiel 34, 11. It'll be on the screen. For this is what the Lord says. After he judges the shepherds of Israel, he says this. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. 
As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day, he is among his scattered flocks, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. You see, God is promising to fulfill what was lacking in the kings of Israel through the person of Christ. And that's always been the plan. It's always been the plan. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. And the compassion of God should motivate our affections for him. And I pray that the word of God testifies to this compassion and bears witness to that compassion on your heart so that you would know that God offers you abundant compassion in Christ so that you can run to him. Knowing full well that he sees your need and joyfully meets your need. God doesn't just see your need and meet it out of obligation. God sees your need and enjoys meeting it. It brings God pleasure to meet the needs of his people. And that is good news. God himself is the one who rescues us from total darkness. God himself strengthens us. And in Christ, we are showered with the compassion of God. This compassion gives us assurance in the faith. It gives us boldness in the faith, right? Because we know that we can approach the throne of God boldly knowing that God's ear is turned to us. And we desperately depend on God's compassion to cleanse us from the filth of sin. But how do we obey God once we've been cleansed, right? So there's, this, there's this, this wonderful thing that happens, right? We are cleansed from our sin because of the work of the gospel. We are called to repentance in the power of God. And by God's power, we are able to turn in repentance and believe in Christ Jesus to save us from our sins. And we spend the rest of our lives as Christ followers continuing to repent and continuing to believe. But how do we obey? Well, we obey because in Christ, we have access to God's power. God's power is what enables us to obey. This power sustains us in Jesus, keeping us close to God and dependent upon him in everything that we do. We see a piece of this power in verses 15 through 19. Let's read it real quick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me, he said. And he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and said to them, said to the disciples, or gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. I love how Jesus never gave anyone in the crowds bread. Jesus gave the bread to the disciples, and the disciples distributed it to the crowd. And so the disciples, Jesus' power fueled the miracle, and the disciples are the ones who gave it to the people. This is awesome. We see the disciples attempt to convince Jesus to, uh, to send the crowd away, right? They've, 
This crowd had been there from the morning all the way through the evening listening to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. Now imagine this. If we started this morning and I taught you about the kingdom of God until 5.30, would you be hungry? Yes, and you probably would want me to stop talking. Let's be honest. You'd be like, man, when is this guy going to be quiet? Jesus did this all day, and the crowd was eager to hear from him. They didn't, they didn't leave. They, they decided to withhold eating in order to hear the king of kings proclaim the kingdom to them. Now that should check us in our eagerness to hear the gospel proclaimed to us. But it goes beyond that. You see, the disciples are like, they're compassionate for the people too. They're like, Jesus, these people need to eat. Send them away. Stop talking. Send them away, Jesus, so they can go get some food. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere for them to get food. Send them away so they can eat. And Jesus does something very peculiar. Now, Jesus is the God-man. He knows everything. And he says this. They don't need to go away. You feed them. You feed them. Now, I don't know about you, but there would be nothing more that would confront me in my inability to do something than to be told to feed 10,000 people. Nothing. But I think this is why Jesus gave the command. Because what it did was this. Jesus gave the command, and the disciples were immediately confronted with their own inability to do what their master required. They, 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 they go, Jesus says, you feed them. They say, no, the only thing we can find is five loaves and two fish. We, we learn from John that this came from a little boy. It would have been good enough to feed one person and not 10,000. But what this shows us is something very peculiar and very awesome about God's compassion and our working. You see, our best attempts to obey God are like the scraps that the disciples gathered together and brought to Jesus. But the amazing thing about God is the scraps are the best place for him to start when it comes to our obedience. Before I had a child, I dreaded the day that I would ever have to feed one. I did. I did not want to feed a child. Um, I think everybody's seen like the infamous like spaghetti photo with the kid covers in spaghetti. Um, the Johnsons actually watched Leon last night and sent us a, uh, a picture of him covered in ice cream after he got covered in spaghetti. So um, they had a lot of fun feeding him last night. But here's the interesting thing, right? Like I did not want to feed a kid. I just, I was, I just looked like a mess and I didn't want to be a part of it. Um, and, and I want to talk up my son for a minute. I mean, he is a good eater. My, my son is an awesome eater, um, and I will talk up his eating skills till the cows come home. But just to give you a picture of my kid's eating skills, he loves fruit. Um, he loves fruit so much that we have to reward him with fruit at the end of his meal, because if not, fruit will become his meal, um, which is a good thing. Uh, I've seen Leon consciously choose green beans and reject macaroni and cheese in the same meal. Never seen that before in a kid. It's incredible. But he has constantly chosen green, consciously said, I want these green beans. He didn't like look at me and say it. But he ate the green beans, pushed away the mac and cheese. And then finally, um, he loves my favorite breakfast food, which is called arepas. And um, for those of you who are not Latin, which uh, I don't think there's, there's many Latinos in the room, arepas is a, is a Venezuelan dish that they cook every morning for breakfast. It's amazing. Um, if you don't believe me, come over to my house. We'll cook you some arepas. They're delicious. They're fantastic. But anyway. He loves them. He will eat them every day. And he's an amazing eater. But even though my son is an amazing eater, sometimes, and, and if you're a parent in here or if you have a younger sibling in here, you, you've probably seen this before, sometimes Leon loves to get his little hand in his mouth and grab whatever it is he's chewing up 
and just throw it. Like, at me, at Sarah, at the floor, the table, whatever. He's just like, to take it out, I don't care what it is, and throw it. And as I was prepping for this message, I realized something. We clean those scraps up off the floor every single day, and they're useless, right? After he's chewed them up and spit them out, they're useless. Our best attempts to obey God are just like the scraps my wife and I clean up off the floor every single day. Every day. Our best attempts, my best attempts to obey the king of kings are as good as the scraps I pick up off the floor. We can't obey God. That's the point. We are incapable. Obedience to God apart from the power of God is impossible. How impossible is it? It's as impossible as me looking at you and saying, feed 10,000 people by yourself. We can't. So what does that mean for us today? That means that you are incapable of spiritual discipline. You are incapable of praying regularly. You are incapable of making disciples. You are incapable of forgiving your brother and sister. You are incapable of forgiving your brother and sister in Christ. You are incapable of raising your kids in Christ-likeness incapable. You and me are incapable of the righteousness that God requires of us, period. And the commands of Jesus are to show us that. Because here's the deal. Your obedience to Christ, you want to obey? You want to obey God? You want to grow in Christ-likeness? You want to grow in righteousness? Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to grow in your devotion to God? Do you want to grow in your love for people? If that is you this morning, here's where your obedience starts. Your obedience starts in your admission that you can't do it. Our obedience begins when we admit that we cannot obey God and that we need the power of God to fulfill the commands of God. That is where obedience starts. That is where maturity in Christ starts. When we admit that we can't. The greatest lie that religion would tell you is that you can be good enough. And the sobering reality of Christianity is you can't. And that's the point. Because Christ is the supreme shepherd that leads us in righteousness and gives us the righteousness. Our obedience to God starts with our admission that we can't. That's what we've talked about the entire time this week at VBS. Kids, what was our memory verse for the week? Do you remember? Anybody remember? If not, if you don't believe me, it's on my shirt. Somebody wants to read it. But I, I want you to say it. Go for it. Loud, loud and proud. Come on, I believe in you. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now, here's the interesting thing about that passage. If God is working in us to give us the desire and the power to do what pleases him, that means that we lack the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is supplying what we are lacking. In his compassion, he is meeting our need. In his compassion, he is seeing our need. Because it is God who works in us to give us the desire and the power to do what pleases him, which means we do not have it. We don't have it. You do not have the power or the desire 
to do what pleases God, which means apart from the saving grace of God, you do not have the desire to obey God. Now that is incredible because what that means is that if right now, if right now bearing witness on your heart and your conscience is a desire to obey God, that means that desire is given to you by God. That means God is working in you if you have the desire to do what pleases him. That is the good news of the gospel that God gives us freely. We receive it freely, and he paid the cost of his son to provide it for us. We have supreme compassion. We have access to supreme power. And we participate in supreme satisfaction. Verse 20 and 21 say that everyone ate and was satisfied. There was so much food provided by Jesus that each disciple, the 12 disciples, had a basket full of bread by the time that they were done. Everybody ate, everybody had seconds, everybody was full, right? Like I think of Thanksgiving, the only time when all of my family members are at peace because everybody is full and like, ah, and we all nap together. It's wonderful, right? Like we love Thanksgiving in our house and the, the peace part was a joke. Like my family loves each other. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, is that nobody was lacking in the desire to eat anymore. There was five loaves and two fish when they started. There were 12 baskets filled after 10,000 people ate. Jesus did not provide everybody with a snack. He provided everybody with a meal, and they were satisfied. Satisfied. Bread out of nowhere, it seems, right? And this would have reminded the Jewish mind at the time of something that happened in the climax of their history. In the Exodus story, when the Jews were liberated from the bondage of Egypt, God did something incredible. Every day they wandered in the wilderness. When people woke up, when they came out of their tents or wherever they were sleeping at, there was a giant, massive pile of bread that was enough for everybody to eat for that day, every single day. God provided manna in the wilderness, bread in the wilderness daily to meet the needs of his people, to show them as a physical reminder that God was willing and and wanting to take them into the promised land, to fulfill the promises that he had given his people. Because God does not go half, half, halfway on his promises. And so this would have reminded the Jewish mind of that. And in the book of John, after John tells us the story of the feeding of 5,000, he gives us insight into a conversation Jesus has with the crowds the next day. You see, they wanted a sign to prove who Jesus was that he said he was. They missed the point of the miracle the day before where Jesus provided bread for thousands of people. They asked Jesus, give us a sign. And the reason why they asked Jesus to give them a sign to prove who he said he was is because they knew that God provided signs for his people to prove that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so Jesus replies to their request for a sign with this. Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Give us this bread, they ask him. And Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will be hungry, and no one who believes in me will be thirsty again. Now, Jesus isn't talking about physical bread here, and he's not talking about physical hunger or thirst. He's talking about a spiritual longing at work in each of our hearts because we are far from God. That Jesus, the bread of life, has come to nourish the human soul and make us completely satisfied. Jesus didn't just supply physical bread to meet the physical needs of people. Jesus used a physical miracle to point to the supreme satisfaction that is offered to us in the gospel. 
Jesus was revealing himself as not just the giver of bread, but the bread himself. Christ has saved us. I want you to hear this. Turn your ears on for a minute. Christ has saved us to make us most happy in our holiness. Now I want you to, I'm going to say that again. Now we've heard from the world that God does not save us to make us happy. It's kind of right. God saves us and makes us most happy in our holiness. The thing that makes us most happy, the thing that gives us most joy, the thing that gives us the most satisfaction is God himself, is the bread of life. And so God doesn't save us and take away our happiness. God replaces our happiness in the world with a supreme happiness in him. And so we enjoy God, not the world. That is the satisfaction that Jesus is pointing to here. We have access to true life. We no longer yearn and, and, and crave the things of this world. We yearn and crave Christ himself, the person of Christ. We are created to enjoy God, and God has paved the way for us to enjoy him through the work of Jesus. And this is the supreme satisfaction that is offered to us. If God is the greatest and supreme, most supreme thing in the universe, then the greatest gift that God could offer his people is himself. And that is the reward that we receive in Christ. The greatest reward that we can see, receive in Christ is God himself. And God has given him his, us himself in the person of Christ so we can enjoy God. Pleasure is a strong motivator. Think about the things that you do. Why do you do them? The simple answer is you want to, right? That is why you do the things that you do, because you want to. We don't have to try to make it more complicated than that. That's why. But here's where it, it, it comes into play with our, with our lives in Jesus, okay? The reason why we choose to sleep in instead of wake up early and read our Bibles is because we enjoy sleep more than we enjoy God. The reason why we choose sin over and over again instead of choosing righteousness is because we enjoy sin more than we enjoy God. The reason why we decide to skip fellowship with other believers in Christ on a Sunday morning for something else is because we enjoy that something else more than we enjoy God. At the root, that is what's going on when we choose sin over anything. We enjoy that sin. We enjoy that thing far more than we enjoy God. That is the, what is working in the depth of our hearts. In Christ, we are to, to, to seek God as our ultimate pleasure. Jesus is the supreme shepherd who offers supreme satisfaction greater than anything we could ever have. The case that Jesus is making and claiming to be the bread of life is not just that he is calling the people of God to have joy in him, but that he is the greatest thing for us to possibly enjoy. And so the interesting thing about that is we have the opportunity to enjoy God and yet we settle for less constantly. C.S. Lewis spoke truthfully when he said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and immorality and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Listen to this. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday 
at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased in the sin that has us entangled. We are far too easily pleased in things that are way short of the glory of the gospel. We are far too easily pleased in the pleasures of this world. We are far too easily pleased to settle with the garbage of this world rather than behold the glory of Christ. The temporary pleasure offered to us in sin pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory offered to us in the Gospels. There is eternal reward in Christ, ultimate satisfaction, supreme compassion, abundant power by the power of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we far too often suppress the glory of Christ with the distractions of this world. We too often are pulled away from magnifying the name of God with everything we've got in order to surrender ourselves to the passions of our flesh. This supreme shepherd has offered abundant compassion in seeing our need and meeting our need. He provides us access to the very power of God that enables us to live godly lives. He satisfies us supremely as being the reward of our faithfulness to him. In Christ, there is fullness of joy. The worship team would come up. I want you to see yourself as desperate this morning. Desperate. To be led by the supreme shepherd who offers ultimate satisfaction in Christ. I want you to see yourself as desperate to behold the glory of Christ regularly in your life. In the, in the Beatitudes, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing his disciples, and he says this beautiful piece of truth. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. May we seek to be satisfied in the King of kings and the Lord of lords this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the abundant mercy of Christ. Thank you for the abundant compassion Christ. Thank you for the abundant grace that is offered to us in Jesus. Thank you for the supreme satisfaction that we get to participate in in the gospel. God, I pray that if we are pleased with something that falls short of your glory, that we would see how meaningless and fleeting it is, that we would see that it is worthless, and that we would behold the glory of Christ, and that you would cause us, that you would give us the desire, that you would give us the power to do what pleases you, to repent and believe in Christ with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
hearts, hearts that are happy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how you have shown yourself to us this week through VBS, through, uh, through your word, through singing together. God, would you help uh, us continually look for you and your presence in our lives as we go out now to share the good news of the gospel with each other. We need to be reminded of it and with those who have yet to hear it. For your name's sake, amen. You're dismissed. Thanks for coming.